Father, as we look at this Christmas story, give us your eyes to see, give us a heart that beats for you, open our minds to embrace the things that come from pain. In Jesus' name, amen. It's one of my favorite stories. I read it all the time at Christmas. I'll post a link up to it from the original author and reader uh, this afternoon on Facebook if you'd like to watch or read it again. Every time I'm going through the Christmas season, I'm reading this story to myself. I, I play it in the background of my office. And multiple times this week and over the past few weeks, because I start listening to it in uh, November, inevitably my, my wife or one of my kids will come up to my office and they'll see me and I'll just be a mess. And they'll say, Daddy, why are you crying? And I'll tell them, because I don't understand God's ways all the time, but Jesus, Jesus makes all of God's ways worth it for me. And uh, in that story, it, it highlights a fictional account of, of this innkeeper that lost his wife and sons because of what happened that we often glaze over during the Christmas season. And in case you've never heard that verse before, in case you don't know how the story goes, the wise men came, they told Herod, we've seen the star of the king, we've come to worship him. And Herod says, I want to worship him too, let me know when you find him. And in a dream, the wise men are warned because God knows Herod's heart. And God knew what would happen. It was in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. This is one of those verses that we don't hear sermons on. This is one of those Christmas stories, and in my study Bible, so often they have commentary on all the verses before this, and they have commentary on all the verses after this, but not many people want to deal with this. However, being a pastor and really just being a follower of Jesus, one thing as I've grown older, year after year, I come to recognize the truth that life brings pain. If you haven't experienced that yet, it's because you're probably like nine and your parents let you stay in here for that story, and it was intense. But life brings pain. Anyone in here going through a painful time or ever been through a painful time in the last 12 months? 12 months. So that's like 80% of us. The 20% of us that didn't raise our hands, 2016 is your year. Like it's, it's got your name on it. Because that, that's the reality. Our world is broken. Our world has been shattered by sin. And things like this horrendous story happen. Things like cancer happen. Things like divorce happen. Things like best friends being torn apart by some strife happen. And it's, it's sin that gets its claws in. And if we don't have some semblance of hope, something to put at the center of our life, something to stand on when things begin to shake, we'll begin to waver. We'll begin to fall into desperation. We'll begin to lose hope. That's why I love that story so much, the innkeeper. Because it, it, it highlights the difference, fictionally of course, but between what someone could approach Jesus with, the, this attitude of hope, this attitude of thanksgiving, saying that all that I have is God's come and stay, I'll be hospitable, 
hospitable versus Herod. And we're going to contrast these three characters today. We're going to contrast the innkeeper, we're going to contrast Herod, and we're going to contrast you to see where you are and how you are connecting with God this Christmas season. Because Herod was a, a wildly wicked man. Herod the Great was his name. Everyone say Herod the Great. He came to power, and he was the ruler over the Jewish people. From about 40 B.C. until 4 B.C., uh, which was around the time Jesus was born. For those of you who don't know that, he probably wasn't born at 0 A.D. It wasn't like when the clock struck 12, Jesus popped out. It was probably around 4 B.C. that Jesus was born, give or take a year or two. Herod died in 4 B.C., and it was at the end of his reign that he was, he was getting uh, freaked out that someone was going to take over. Because when he became king, he liked the power. He wanted the power so much that when he became king, he tracked down anyone who would have a claim to his throne and began killing them. And that didn't stop there. When he ever caught wind or thought that there might be an assass assassination attempt on his life, he would kill whoever it was. And the whoever was pretty grim. He, killed one of, he had one of his wives killed. He had three of his own sons killed because he thought they were after his throne. This guy had serious egomania, power issues of wanting to control all of his situations. Now I know, or at least I pray, that none of you are like that here today. But what I want us to think about is what would drive a person so mad to begin having people of your own family executed just to secure your power, just to secure your authority. Because what happens now at the end of his life, after he had done all these atrocities, a baby was born, and Herod had already known that he was sick. Herod already knew that he was going to be on his way out. And then when he got tricked and became furious, he set out that command. And I don't know, I know it's different for all of us, we're in different phases of life, but when you have a two-year-old and a four-year-old and a seven-year-old Things like this really crush me hard. And if you don't have that or if your kids are grown now, think about your grandkids. This is, this is one of the most deep, touching passages in the Bible for me at this phase of my life. When the children are killed. People ask me all the time about various things as a pastor. What are your views on this? What are your views on that? And they have been asked many times, like, what are your views on abortion? You know, when you get interviewed at a church in the South, they want to they make sure that you at least believe the major framework. And, and here's my views on abortion. Abortion sucks. Abortion is painful. But what I've seen happen so often is that when somebody goes through that process, that, that we as a church have sometimes just cast them out as unacceptable. And we're so much pro-life for the baby that we forget to be pro-life for the mothers who are wrestling with all the pain they have gone through. And this, this country, this day and age, where we're at today, we read something like this and we say, nothing like that would ever happen here. We never have to worry about some leader saying, it's okay to kill all the kids two years old and under. And we don't realize that we've had leaders that say, it's okay to kill all the kids nine months old and younger. And it just kind of slips through as legislation and law. But, but today's passage isn't about that. It's about, it's about what would drive people to a decision like that. And that's where it connects so deeply. Herod would kill anybody to maintain power over his life. And, and I think that I'm not much different from him. I think that I have things in my life that I regard and I look to to give me worth and to give me value, and that if I lost them, 
I would begin desperately fighting to try to secure those things. And we hear it all the time. We hear it in the news. The election cycle's coming up, so you guys are going to um, have a good time with me because I'm going to be busting chops the entire cycle against every political party because I, I only have one king. I've had a couple presidents, and I've got one king. And one of the things that blows my mind is that, A, we still trust these people in any way. Like, it, it literally flabbergasts me. And I've, I've only, I haven't been voting for, for very long. I started voting in 1999, uh, 98, that was when I could vote, so whatever election was after that. And, and I remember the first time I voted, I was so pumped. And, and I'm a nerd, you guys know this, self-proclaimed nerd. So I don't, I don't want to vote haphazardly. So I'm like, send me the pamphlets they give you, and then I'm going on all the, the politicians' websites. I'm like, I want to know what you believe. What are you going to fight for? What are the issues? How are you going to deal with this? And my first one, man, I... I think I had stars and stripes in my eyes. I got the flag. I was pumped. I go and I vote. I'm like, yeah, we're going to get all these things going on. Oh, it's going to be so cool. And then someone goes to office. And then some of the, the uh, ballot measures that I voted for back in California, they went to the, the state. And, and then I saw what happened. Like everything just crumbled apart and went to total and utter mess. And I'm like, oh, that was the worst. It must be the state that I live in. Next election cycle, it's gear all up. I'm going to research. I'm going to email. I'm going to email my senator. I'm going to email my house representative. I'm going to email the mayors. I'm going to just do that. I'm going to citizen. I'm an American, America. Went through another election cycle. These guys had promised so much, the world. And then they get elected. And they promised the world, and they give me a can of beets. What is going on? And now I'm used to it. So now I watch the election debates. I watch someone just saying, we're going to do this for you. We're going to do this for you. I watch the news, the media, the rallies of college students. They're like, we want no student debt. We want $15 an hour. And I'm like, that's what I want too, you know? No student debt, $15 an hour. And we just, we just keep going. And then we have other people on the other side saying, this, we don't like this. Do this. Protect us here. You know what I've come to believe? They just want to get elected because there's something in each politician that, that I think has to be so deep and such a need for them to feel worth and value that they're willing to throw their families on the griddle iron of life to get that office. You know the main reason I would never run for an office? I don't want to say never, because every time I do that, God's like, <laughs> You know why I don't think I'd ever like to run for office, Jesus? Because... Because I see what these families are put through. And I look at my wife and kids and I'm like, I love you too much to have you destroyed and have someone dig into our life and bring up Facebook posts from eight years ago that I meant what I said then and I still mean. It just, it's too much for me. But these, these characters, I think, have such a need either for the power or for the wealth or for the prestige or for whatever it is that they're willing to sacrifice, that they're willing to stretch truths like hot taffy in order to get to the place that they want to be. And that's where Herod was, and I think that's where you and I are today, although we don't want to yet admit it. So I, I want to keep reading just so you can get the full brunt of that passage. Verse 17 of Ch uh, Matthew chapter 2 says, Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew wants to drive home to the Jewish people that when this happened, it was part of God's plan. That this Herod was put in the position he was 
to fulfill this prophecy of God, and you have to ask yourself the question, why would God allow such pain into the life of a city? Or for you specifically, why would God allow whatever's going on in your life right now to happen, to be there? Whether it's the loss of a job, whether it's some chronic illness, whether it's a strain in your family's relationships, whatever it is, all of us, or 80% of us for 2015 have that thing that is painful, that hurts. And we have to ask ourselves, why? God, why? And I know that there was this big movement. I remember um, when I first got saved, I've always been a sermon listener, and I heard this handful of sermons, and they were so weird to me. And the sermons said something like this, don't ask God why. And that was the premise of them. Don't ask God why, just accept it. And I, I was a why kid. My mom will tell you, I, I, I popped out a why kid. I think my second word was why. My first word was a curse word. Um, and no, not joking. So my, my second word was why, and I've never stopped asking why. My wife doesn't like it, I think, that I ask why, so I try not to say it at home as often. But I want to know the reason behind everything. I want to know the why for every single thing. And my son Jackson has the same gift slash curse because we'll be in the car, and I never got my answer satisfied when I was a kid. My mom would give me the classic mother line when I asked why. She would say, because I, right? A bunch of parents in here, nailing it. I didn't like that answer. So I've tried with all of my might to not use that answer, but Jackson has my same disposition for annoying people that I do. So we'll be in the car, and we may be going down to Sarasota for the beach or something, and he'll just get on one of these things. Daddy, why is the sky blue? And I'm like, oh yeah. And Amy's like, no. Because I'm thinking, I'm going to answer this guy until he relents, and he quits. Like, I'm going to win this victory. Well, son, the sky is blue because of the way that the light refracts. And he's like, Daddy, why did God make light? Well, let me tell you. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Daddy, why does God exist? I mean, these, and they'll go on and on. And then finally, Amy will just be like, be quiet. We should go to the beach. We're playing the quiet game. That's her favorite game. My favorite game is the why game. Her favorite game is the quiet game. But, but I heard these sermons talking about why. And, and we should never ask God why. So then I asked that sermon, why should I never ask God why? And then I read the Bible and I re- read the book of Psalms. It's full of a bunch of griping, sad or angry or happy people. And when they're sad, when they're down, they're saying, God, why? Why is this happening? Why is this going on? I don't get it. And I want you guys to have that freedom to go before God. And we don't have to go before him with all of the politeness in the world. God is not a Baptist preacher. God is not a Catholic priest. God does not want us to come to him trembling with fear, saying only nice things, because God can look into your heart. God knows how many times today you've said sour things inside your head. God knows what you say when you stub your toe, even if it doesn't come out your mouth. I got one. And the problem that we have in our brand of Christianity is that it's so easy to pretend because we feel like if we can just pretend well enough to fool everyone else, then maybe we'll fool God too. And I think some of us believe that so deeply that it's caused us to hide our pain. It's caused us to put up a strong front. It's caused us to say that things are okay when things are really, really, really not okay. Herod and me and you 
we have these things in our life that we are dying to protect, or in Herod's case, killing to protect. I want you to think about what it is in your life that gives you the greatest sense of worth or value or meaning. Or, or put another way, what thing in your life, if you lost it today, would take away your will to live? Some of you might say, my children. If my children died in some tragic accident, I just couldn't go on. And that's understandable. Man, I love my kids. I love them. I don't know what I would do if God took one of my kids. When I read stories like that, it's why they crush me. But I, I trust that it's in the sovereign plan of God and that God does what he says he'll do that he will work all things together for good for those who are in Christ Jesus to be conformed to the image of God. It's not work all things together for good just so that you're happy, healthy, wealthy. It's to shape all of his people to look like Jesus at the end of the day. Maybe for you, it's your spouse. Maybe some of you think, man, I love my spouse so much. If they weren't here, I don't know if I could go on. Man, I love my wife. She is so rad. She's my best friend. She's a rock star. I'll tell you one thing for sure. If my wife uh, passed away, I, I would wither away because I wouldn't know how to take care of these children, like straight up. I have no idea how mothers do what they do. They have some sort of implanted Red Bull where they can clean and they can cook and they can work and they can uh, do all of that when they have the flu. And when I have the flu, I can cry, and I can moan, and I can ask for more Gatorade, and I can send someone up to the store for a Popsicle. That's all I can do when I have got the flu. I don't know what I'd do without my wife, but I'll tell you what, my wife and, my wife and I early on in our marriage had a very stark conversation. Um, I try to read my Bible as much as I can when it's not around like the, the kids and family, so I'm not just sitting there reading all the time, although I do read a lot, I know. My wife complains. I'm saying I know for my wife, wherever you are. I'm sorry. I love you. But uh, one year I was reading the Bible, and it just so happened that where I was working, I had to read it more at home in the evening hours, in the car, wherever we were. So I was reading my Bible, and she said, you're reading your Bible so much. And I don't know what it was about me this day. I felt like holy, like I was uh, just this holy rolling. So I, had my, I told my Bible, this Bible actually, is the first year I read through it. And I said, Amy, <clears throat> I just want to let you know, and husbands never say this, even if it's true to 100%, even if you mean it. I need to let you know that I love Jesus way more than I love you. <laughs> right? Because <laughs> there's better ways you could say it. Like, like, Jesus is my number one and you're my number two, boo, you know? <laughs> but I was like, way more than I love you. And just to see the look go down her face, like, seriously? Like, I didn't know that. But I just wanted to be extra holy and let her know that day from the good Lord. And uh, I felt terrible the rest of that year. Um, and it was only January. But here's the reality. If I looked at my wife to give me my sense of validation and worth and meaning, she'll let me down, just like I'll let her down. If I look to my kids to give me a sense of worth and validation and meaning and purpose for my life, ultimate purpose, the thing that gives me the ultimate identity, they will let me down. If you want to know um, a little trick, and I love doing this because I coached soccer here last quarter, and I think I'm going to coach again because Chuck doesn't ask me, he just makes me coach. Um, 
I love, I love being out there because I'm trying to be all cheerful. I'm running up and down the field. The Florida's sticking to me. And, uh, and you see the parents on the sidelines. And you've got um, really three types of parents. You've got um, don't care parent, just glad that my kids are having fun. You've got parent who is like, I want you to make my kid the next child soccer star, like the next Christian Ronaldo, but I'm going to be kind. And then you've got the parent who says, if my son is not David Beckham by the end of this season, you will know. So those are the three types of parents, and you can guess which ones are my favorite. The last one. Um, because I, I, love, I love it when people show me their idols so clearly. I love going on Facebook and I look at my own idols, and we have a worksheet that we're handing out. It'll be online today on our Facebook page at the end of the service as well to help you discover what is it that would make you go crazy like Herod went crazy? What is it that if you lost it or it was threatened makes you snap like Herod snapped? And, and kids' sports is one of the best things because let's be honest. These kids are six and seven years old out there. There's none that are going to bend it like Beckham. There, there's no kids out there that are, that are going to be stellar soccer players at that age, um, yet these parents think that they will be, and if I'm being totally honest, half the time it's me too. Because Jackson, if you haven't seen my oldest son, he's a monster. He's seven years old. People think he's a 10-year-old. He hangs out with all the third graders because they're the same size, but he talks like a first grader. And when you go out there, he's not the fastest. There's a couple kids faster than him, but his leg is so long, when he kicks the ball, it's like a golf club just coming from the rear and speeding it toward people. So much so that this year, during a penalty kick, I wanted to win so badly that I sinned against a, a family at the church because their daughter was guarding the goal. And this was the championship game, no joke, right out here, and I wanted to win, but I was smiling and pretending that I was a good pastor. And I, and, and I said, Jackson, you're going to kick it. And they were all standing in front of the goal, the other little kids. And he said, what do I do? And I said, just kick it right at her head and she'll duck. <laughs> right. So Jackson winds up, unleashes the ball, bounces off the girl's head, goes into the goal, but then the ref says, no, it doesn't work that way. It's got to touch another player first. I don't know these rules. But then I found out later that the rule actually would have stuck because it just has to hit another player, and we actually might have won that game, just saying, if you're here, Pettits, wherever you're at. So, and right after that happened, right after Jackson booted the ball right at this girl's face in a six-year-old soccer league on a church campus where the pastor's the coach, the other coach comes up to me and says, I thought you were the pastor. And I said, pastors need Jesus too. Come on to the chapel. My idolatry was revealed. I'm working on it. And I want you to think about it too, because it may not be family for you. It may be your career. It may be, it may be the thing that if you lost it and would throw you into desperation, would be losing status at a job. It may be losing some friendship or relationship, losing some level of fame or platform that you have. It may be the thing that you depend on and, and, and find your identity in is your appearance. Man, I can't tell you how much this is a tough one for me. It's the season to be jolly and eat a bunch of cookies. However, I really kicked off Thanksgiving with a bang. And uh, thanks to the advice of one of my friends, uh, I stopped calling pumpkin pie pumpkin pie, and I now call it veggie pie, so it's healthier. 
So I had veggie pie for breakfast a couple days in a row. And, uh, and Christmas is just coming. And my vanity is always right in tow. And you don't realize that something is your idol until it begins to get threatened. And right now, what's threatening is my regular jeans are looking more like skinny jeans. What's threatening now is, is the last wedding that I did, um, I had to get into my suit, and I had to like not eat almost for 10 days just to get back into a suit that I only bought 13 months ago. Because I moved to Florida, and you guys give me everything with cheese and gravy and butter. And, and uh, so I put on my suit, and I just felt like something was like squeezing my blood up from my ankles to my head, and I thought I was going to be the Barney-looking head at this wedding. And then all of a sudden, my idols are firing in all gears. And it's, it's, is your identity in how you look right? Is your identity in if your son's soccer team can win? Is your identity in if the church grows? Is your identity in if the church has enough money? Is your identity in this or that? Is your identity for me today, my, my football team's playing a big game, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers, greatest team of all time, playing the Cincinnati Bungles. Um, and I'm all... I'm all anxious about it because I know that I'm going to sin as soon as they, if they lose, I'm sinning. And if they win, I'm sinning. Either way, I'm going to sin today. Um, and I need Jesus at the end of that game. I should not watch it, but then I'm too much of an idol addict to do that. Um, see, now I'm all convicted in front of you guys. So let me ask you this. In your life, what is it for you that gives you that sense of earning God's love and approval? Because there's a math formula I want to teach you that I've taught uh, one time before, and I just, want to, I just want to reiterate this math equation. And you'll know that, obviously, I'm bad at math because I'm a pastor. I only have theological degrees. Everyone say, repeat after me, ready? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Okay, we're going to do it one more time because you guys are a little sloppy, a little sloppy agape. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Okay, now we're going to see if you could do it without me saying it. I'm just going to point at the word that it would have been, and we'll see if you guys remember it. Ready? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Okay. You've said it a couple times. I hope that you start to believe it, because here's what we want to do. We want to always add something in our lives to make us feel like God actually loves us. We want it to be up to us. And the reason it's Jesus plus nothing is because we need to bring our empty hands to God and say, God, I'm giving you nothing. My heart just chases after idols. My heart chases after God's substitutes. And I want to add nothing to my life except for more of Jesus. And the strangest thing happens when you do that. When you can finally zoom in on Jesus alone, things that you've been waiting to happen to you your entire life, like peace and joy and patience, will finally start to flood into your life. I want to read this quote so we can think about idolatry before I break it down and then we'll be out of here. Idolatry is simply trying to build our identity on something besides God. An idol is anything that is taking the proper place of God in our lives. An idol is anything or anyone that you conclude in your heart you must have in order for your life to be meaningful, valuable, secure, exciting, or free. And I need you to know today that the most free you can ever be is when you come to that math problem where Jesus plus nothing equals everything you need. It's only if you go through that lens that chronic illness will not crush you under its weight. It's only if you see life through that lens where Jesus is the central figure in history for your hope and for the hope of the world. It's only then 
where it's Jesus alone that you can finally find the peace that you've been fighting for on restless nights. Our culture tries to spin off, and by our culture I mean Christian culture, tries to spin off a lot of different versions on this. Um, Jesus plus being cool. Like coolness is a thing. If you go to churches nowadays, and I, I love my tattoos, but I almost regret them because now it became a cliche. Like pastors and worship leaders, they all have tattoos, and they worship like this, and there's supposed to be some Hebrew right here and some Greek over here. And I get it. Like I want to get some of those tattoos because I love them so much. But it's not about how cool any church is. It's not about the music. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the style of the people. It's not about the city that it's in. It's about Jesus. It's not about Jesus plus self-improvement. That's a big one. I see so many people that, that take Jesus in the beginning of their Christian life and they say, thank you for saving me. Now I'm going to try to clean myself up. I'm going to try to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm going to try to earn my way in. I'm going to try to change with the strength of my will. And you just let me know after 10, 20, 30 years how that's going for you. You might be able to change some external things, but it's nearly impossible to change an internal heart. And by nearly, I mean completely. Only Jesus can do that. It's not Jesus plus money. It's not Jesus plus power. It's not Jesus plus success. It's not Jesus plus church attendance. It's not Jesus plus tithing. It's not Jesus plus self-esteem. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything we need to finally unlock the access to God where we have the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, and the faithfulness we're all dying to have. Your idols today may not send you into killing sprees like Herod's did to him, but they may send you into wrong thinking where you put yourself first, God second, others last, when the reality of our life is that it's always Jesus first and others first, and then in that we find the true meaning and purpose for how we ought to live. I love meeting people who have been touched by Jesus in that way. When they realize more and more that there's nothing that we give to God that makes him finally tip over the scales and say, now I'll love you. I've been greeting people this morning with uh, my weird greetings. If, if you've been on the receiving end of one of my greetings, you know that it feels weird to receive it. Uh, the first time it felt weird for me to say it, it goes something like this, and I make them up. I don't practice them. I say, good morning daughter of the king, beloved saint, washed by the blood of Christ, secure in the arms of the Father, always loved, never unloved, forever his, and all for his glory because Jesus is around you. Amen. And then I walk away. And, it, and sometimes because we have visitors, I don't know who's new all the time, so I'll just shake a random person's hand and I'll just go for it. And you'll just see people's faces go. And sometimes people say, I'm, not, I'm no saint. You can't call me a saint. And then I know you came from the Catholic Church. <laughs> and what I tell them is, you are a saint because Jesus died for you, not because you did anything of your own merits. Sometimes people say, no, no, like, I, 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 don't, I think God's been mad at me when I say God loves you with a forever love, relentless, one-way love. You cannot shake his love off of you. No, no, he's been really mad. You, Ryan, you wouldn't believe it. This week I had a flat tire. This week I got a ticket. You would not believe it. I say, no, no. That's God's way of showing you his love. I know it's twisted and weird seeming, but just wait a year and tell me how that all shakes down. I think God graciously gives us things like that from time to time to remind us that it's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. 
and not Jesus plus our good behavior, not Jesus plus our good life. I loved, uh, my wife went out this week. I'm, I'm going to tell on her a little bit. She's been pulled over twice since we moved to Florida. She's never been pulled over before in our marriage until we moved here. Uh, she's gotten out of both tickets because she cries, and she's smoking hot. Uh, this time, however, she, she got, we have to register our car in Florida. It's still California. I know, we did that wrong. But uh, I said, did you drop so-and-so's name? We have an ex-sheriff that goes here. I said, did you drop his name to see if we got out the ticket? She said, no, I was just crying. And I had four children in the back seat that only holds three children. I said, man, what a grace of God, because she was like bummed out, got to take on, what a grace of God that you didn't get arrested. Like how much God must love you to let you illegally drive children around and not be in jail? Because we fought about it a bunch of times. I'm like, we can't do it, it's breaking the law. And she's like, just do it, put them on the floor. And I'm like, someone's going to die. <laughs> and, uh, and now we won't do it. And now it's on uh, Eternalized and podcast. We're, whatever it is for you, that you think gives you the success and love and power and approval, I want you to put it on the ground today and let God smash it. Let him smash it by his power, by replacing Jesus as your sole source of approval and worth and value. These worksheets that I printed out, they're at guest services, and I'll post a link to uh, the, these questions on Facebook uh, this afternoon. It has 20 questions, and make sure when you read it, you always read the top line first before you read the idol lines. And it's going to help you discover which idols you have in your heart. And all of us have idols. John Calvin said our idols are a, our, our hearts are a factory for idols. We just make up new things to substitute in the place of God to give us worth, meaning, value, security, and freedom. So grab that worksheet on the way out and just think about it. Just look at it once today. Pray for a couple days. Look at it again on Wednesday and just start writing down your idols. And if you could do me a huge favor, just send them to me in a Facebook message. Send them to me in an email. Hey, Pastor Ryan, I think these might be my idols. What in the world do I do? Uh, and if you're wondering, I don't want to send Pastor Ryan the whole list because I've got like 17 idols. Just know that I'm right there with you. I score 18 out of 20 almost every time. But God loves me and God loves you. And that's what we need to remember today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even though painful times come, when we get you at the center of them, you will begin to make sense for us these things that don't make sense. I pray today for anyone who is struggling that you would give them a sense of hope and peace. I pray during this, uh, during this next uh, moment of our service, we would reflect on words that we so often neglect because they've been sung by every pop star and band in between. God, I love you. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you snatched me up you still love me. No matter how often I blow it, you're there to pick me up. In Jesus' name, amen.